New York Artist Collective. And welcome to the New York Artist Collective podcast, this next one's about. This is the podcast where we ask artists to go behind the scenes of one of their songs with us. Uh, tell us a little bit about the writing process and how it became the song that we're going to hear a little later in the show. My name's Stephanie Manns, one of the New York Artist Collective producers, and today's guest is Blake Morgan, producer, singer-songwriter and music activist who started his own successful independent label ECR Music. Blake currently hosts a bi-monthly residency at Rockwood Music Hall and is re-releasing newly mastered versions of his previous albums and I'll ask him more about that and his song Better Angels in today's show. Blake, thank you and uh, welcome to the show, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to, to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. So you are a busy man. You are a producer, a singer, songwriter, a, a music activist, you lecture, you have your own record label. What, what is it that you don't do? <laughs> Wow, that's true. I do do all of those things. Um, uh, I don't play drums, but other than that, I play six other instruments. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is, I think other than playing music and writing music, none of the other things in my life I, that I do, um, I, I really ever planned on doing. I didn't plan on owning a record label. I didn't initially plan on being a record producer or recording engineer. I certainly didn't plan on being a music advocate um, from an activism standpoint. Um, and I actually never even really uh, early on thought I was going to be a singer. Um, but these all just seemed to sort of add on as I kept going through my journey with music. And, uh, and I've added on and added on. It's one of the big questions I get asked all the time. You know, don't each of these things actually take away time from all of the other things? And the answer is simply put, yes, they do. But what I've discovered, both fortunately and unfortunately in my life, is that they take away far less time than having someone else come in and screw up the music that you have worked so hard to make or to formulate uh, or to envision. So it, it does take a lot more time than it would if I wasn't doing all these things, but I also wouldn't be the artist I am if I didn't do all these things. You know, being a record producer uh, makes me a better singer. Uh, being a guitar player makes me a better record label owner. It really does. So I'm good at all of these things because I'm good at all of these things. And if I were to take any one or two of those things out of the equation, I think the equation would sort of fall apart. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, actually, because there aren't, and there aren't very many, I would say, artists that are that good at the sort of business side of music. And I think these days you absolutely need to be. Um, but, you know, typically with artists, you know, it's the left brain, right brain thing. So I think you're definitely, you know, you're incredibly well positioned um, to be able to do all of those things. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's rare. Um, I think it's becoming less rare because I think musicians really do have to have some kind of 360 degree vision as to what they're trying to do or how to do it. Um, it's become much, much harder for any musician to survive in this world economically than it was 10 years ago. And one of the things each of us has had to do is to learn things that we didn't think we were going to have to, you know, uh, the, the image I always use is it really is kind of like the, the asteroid hit the planet and those artists who really can only eat one thing are probably not doing very well, much like the dinosaurs. Um, but once the dinosaurs were out of the way, um, there were all of these ugly little proto mammals and proto rodents who were willing to eat anything and do anything to try to survive. And, uh, it's an ugly image, but it isn't inaccurate when it comes to what's happened to music in the last 10 years. 
Um, so those of us who have been able to be musical omnivores seem to have a better chance at surviving and thriving than the specialists. You know, the omnivores have done better than the herbivores or carnivores. So if you're a, if you're a multi-anything in music, I think you have a better chance at, at making more music um, and, and, and thriving than if, you, than if you're more of a specialist. It's very hard to be a musical specialist these days. I love that metaphor. We'll certainly come on to talk about uh, the I Respect Music campaign um, a little later on. But at the moment, shall we, just, shall we move to your song? So we're going to talk about your, your song, Better Angels. So with this podcast, generally what we do is we, um, we ask you to kind of give us a bit of background on the song, um, as you might kind of on stage, and we can talk a little bit more about it. Sure. Well, there, there are a couple things that are sort of interesting about this song and the track itself uh, that you'll be playing. Um, from a song standpoint, um, it, it's one of, if not the best known song I've written, uh, probably. Um, it's a song I recorded for an album of mine called Burning Daylight. It's also a song that the great and late Leslie Gore recorded uh, for her album Ever Since, which turned out to be her last record. Um, it's a song that I produced and recorded for her with that record. Um, and uh, it's one that we toured together, and she and I would sing as a duet uh, every night on tour. Um, somewhat hilariously, it's also a song that uh, was used for the season premiere episode of uh, a show called CSI Miami, which is not the highest brow show you'll ever find on television, but it is a big show. Um, the song itself is about hope and doubt. And it's essentially taking a, a, a phrase from Abraham Lincoln. And, uh, and the song fairly simply states, you know, if you're going to give me hope, you've got to do better than this. And I'm going to hang on for that because I, I, I believe it's worth doing so. There's a line in the song um, where I sing, uh, I wouldn't mind hanging on if I could find out what I'm hanging from. So a lot of my songs, and I think some of the songs that have really resonated with an audience are ones where I'm talking about hope kind of from a dark place, but I haven't lost that hope. And that's what the song is about. Hilariously, on the episode of CSI Miami, um, David Caruso, who was the star of that show, David Caruso, who I also like to refer to as this century's William Shatner, um, he, he runs into a cathedral and kneels before this altar and has this powerful religious moment right before he goes out and kills a lot of gang members. And uh, it, it, I, I welcomed the placement. It certainly turned a larger audience onto my song, but with respect, the, na- the, uh, the network truly did miss the, uh, the point of the song. So uh, it's, a, it's a meaningful song for, for me. It's, it's one that will accompany me, I'm sure, for the rest of my musical life. Um, but uh, the last thing I'll say about it before you play it is um, I've had the pleasure this summer of remixing and remastering, uh, restoring from the ground up that record, Burning Daylight, including Better Angels. So the version that you're going to play um, is far better sounding than any version of that song that's ever been uh, in play before. Um, and uh, the, the remix and remaster of, of the full record is something I'm very proud of. Um, and that record is now available everywhere. It's, it's really sounding the way I'd always wanted it to in my heart and in my head. And so um, finally, after a bunch of years where I wasn't thrilled with how it sounded, it's really kind of a pleasure to be able to come onto a show and say, hey, listen to this, because I think it sounds great now. <laughs> okay, well, let's take a listen, then we'll chat a little bit more about it. It's 
So Blake, Better Angels, it's it's a, a lovely and such a beautiful song. Um, and I'm I'm so glad that you chose that one to that you know as it. Um, tell me a little bit more about the decision to to remaster and reissue. I mean, to to Joe Bloggs, um, who might be listening, who's not terribly familiar with the, the process or or the you know the need for for mastering or remastering. Um, just explain that to us. So mastering specifically is the last step in the recording process, um, and important things happen in that in that stage: final equalization, um, compression. Um, but other things too, like spaces between the songs, how loud each song is in comparison to each other and in comparison to other music out in the world. Um, with Burning Daylight, um, the record that Better Angels is on, I did more than remaster it. I actually remixed the record from the ground up. So I went back to the original multitracks and remixed it in high definition audio. Um, Burning Daylight is the only record of mine I've ever made where I didn't have my hands on the console. I made it with a dear friend of mine and a Grammy award-winning producer. Um, and we made it at a time, it originally came out in 2005 and there were certain aesthetics that were kind of popular then, but I always felt that the record had kind of gone in a direction I didn't really love. And so two nice things have happened, um, in 2018 for me, actually more than that, but these are two at the top of the list. Um, one is my record label, ECR music group got a new distribution deal through Sony music, uh, and their independent wing called the orchard. And the other part of it is that I signed a, uh, a, a music publishing deal with Modern Works Music Publishing. So these are both nice additions to my career and kind of give my music and my label's music greater reach. And I had this idea somehow that came into my head saying, you know, if you were ever going to go back and kind of dig back through your recorded catalog and, and change anything, now would probably be a really good time because you're not going to have this opportunity really ever again. So I did. So I spent most of the summer actually remixing and remastering the record. And when I say remix, I don't mean like some EDM version of the record. It's just sort of rebuilding the record. And I think, you, you know, you're right. Um, lay people may not really know what a mix is or what a master is. Somehow lay people do know what the filmmaking process is. So a lot of time with music, I talk about it in terms of film. A record producer, for example, is exactly like a film director. A mix engineer or a recording engineer is exactly like a cinematographer. So when you're remixing a record, what you're doing is you're not reshooting the movie. You're taking all of the original footage of the movie and you're maybe saying, well, you know what? Actually, I think that this scene, the lighting was a little too dark or the music was a little too loud. Or in fact, maybe there was a better performance from that actor. We always meant to kind of use that other take. So it's sort of like a director's cut when you remix and you remaster a record. There's a lot of technical stuff that goes into it, but there's much more art that goes into it too. And this record now sounds much more um, like the rest of my catalog. It doesn't sort of stick out. Um, and I think that the songs have been brought to life. You know, at, at heart, I'm a songwriter, and I felt that a lot of the songwriting on the record was kind of being obscured by the, the mix that, that they were having to live in. And I think that Plainly put, what I did with the mix is I sort of wiped the windshield clean so you could see the songs. Um, and I'm actually really happy with the fact that the songwriting has leapt to the forefront for that record. And that's kind of why I want to play Better Angels, because that's always been a song that's been dear to me. Um, but I think that the production now, and the, the way it's been mixed and mastered, really isn't trying too hard anymore. And you can just kind of listen to it and hopefully connect to my vocal and and connect to the song itself. That's amazing. And it, it must be so liberating as an artist to have that creative control. Did you 
did you own your own masters from the start? I've always owned my own masters, even even with my major label record deal, my with my debut album. Um, when I fought to get out of that deal and, and successfully did, I, I got my masters. And in fact, I remastered that record as well. This this entire summer and this fall, I've actually remastered all of my four albums with Burning Daylight and one other record of mine called Silencer, getting the special treatment of the remix and remaster to it. No, so come Christmas, my entire catalog will will sound uh, all spruced up and better than ever. <laughs> oh, congratulations! I'm I'm really glad that you've managed to to do that and and you know now feel happier with with everything that you've you've done and, and the sound that you have on it now. Yeah. Um, I was just saying I uh, read an article I think in I think it was the Huffington Post by Paula Cole, mm-hmm. um, who was talking about um, you know she she had that uh, music placement on Dawson's Creek. Sure. Um, but she said that she didn't own them, and I think you know it took mm. years to kind of. Get, get to the point where she was able to, to renegotiate and, and own her own masters and, and then do a re-release of her, um, I think sure. her debut album. So yeah, sure. that was sort yeah. of why I wanted to, to ask you that question. As many artists, you know, go into it not necessarily knowing much about music law or having the best representation, but it sounds like, you know, you've either had the, you know, good representation or you've, you've had some, some good sense about you. Yeah, no, I've, I've, you know, owning, owning one's own work is, is really important. And, um, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons I started ECR Music Group and started the label. Uh, all of the artists on the label own 100% of their master recordings. We simply license it from the artist. So if you are signed to my label, you actually aren't signed. Your work is signed. We've licensed your record uh, for a period of time so that we can work with it and help promote it and market it. Um, but in the end, if you think that we're terrible people and you want to, you want out, you can get out and you can get out with your own masters and own them. It's that's, that's the bedrock principle of the label. And, then, and it's because of the experience that I had and, and wanting to own my own music. It must be amazing for the, the artists that you've signed to your label um, to, to work with you, you know, a, a fellow artist who, who knows that experience and, you know, they, they can maintain their, their own creative control. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's a really special thing about this label. It's the way I wanted it to be from the beginning. And I, I think it's really kind of come about to be just that. It's a place where artists can work together, um, work on their own music and push each other to, to be better, um, but where they know that their work is safe and will be given the best shot to win as big an audience as possible. And um, that's really all any label can ever offer an artist. But unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work out as, as cleanly as that. So let's talk a little bit about um, the I Respect Music movement. So from what I understand, you uh, wrote an op-ed in the Huffington Post um, a couple of years ago. Was it, 20, was it 2013? Well, it's yeah, it started in 2013. Um, actually, not with an op-ed, but a letter that I wrote. Um, there was an email exchange between me and the founder of Pandora, the digital radio giant, which is not as giant as it used to be anymore. Um, an email exchange was published between uh, me and the founder of, of Pandora, and... Uh, and it created quite a hubbub, and um, so much so that uh, that the Huffington Post got a hold of the emails and published them. And it was such bad press for Pandora, Pandora that was trying to confuse artists into signing their own petition that would then be used to lobby members of Congress to lower artist royalties by up to 85% at the time. And I called him out on that. And uh, the morning after the email exchange was published, Pandora lost $130 million on the stock market in value. And uh, it was a real wake-up call for a lot of people, including me, because I had not intended for that to happen. <laughs> and, uh, 
and uh, it that experience, and then Pandora having to pull back on their own signature legislation again to lower rates to artists. Um, they pulled back on it. They they abandoned it, um, and it was a real victory for music makers. And for me, it was really the beginning of my artist advocacy, my music advocacy, because I thought, well, you know, they spent tens of million dollars, to tens of millions of dollars lobbying for this piece of legislation, and I really had an enormous hand in killing it by writing two emails. Well, I wonder what else I could do. And so that really gave birth to the I Respect Music idea, which was to create a petition and also a rallying cry for, for music makers um, uh, to, to try to get artists pay for radio airplay. Um, you're not from the United States, so you will find this horribly shocking, as you should. But the United States is the only democratic country in the world where artists don't get paid for radio airplay. What does that mean? It means that if I say R-E-S-P-E-C-T, you of course think of Aretha Franklin. But Aretha Franklin has never paid, has never been paid one dime for that song being on the radio in the United States. And that's because she didn't write the song. Otis Redding wrote the song. And songwriters do get paid for, for AM, FM radio, as they should, not remotely as much as they should, but they do get paid. Artists, however, get no compensation whatsoever. So the I Respect Music movement really started as a rallying cry to, to, to gain artist pay for radio airplay. It's become so much more than that. It's become every issue in music and how artists um, and songwriters, all music makers, um, are, are really shafted and uh, these days and have had a very, very hard time getting paid, whether it's through streaming, whether it's through radio play. Um, so it, it, I'm, I'm really, I continue to be amazed at, at how powerful the campaign continues to be. I was just at American University lecturing for students over there about the I Respect Music movement and, and each of these issues. And there's more engagement about it you know, than ever. And, and I'm, I'm really proud of it. You're, you're not wrong. It did start with a Huffington Post op-ed, the campaign did. Um, and those were the, that was the first time where I, I had ever written down the words, I respect music in order. And it was following that op-ed that uh, people spontaneously started hashtagging and posting selfies, holding up the hashtag, I respect music. So um, it's, it's a remarkable origin story of how it's come you know how it how it came into existence, but these days I'm I'm even more um, I'm just more astonished at how it continues to roll and uh, how music makers in general, through new legislation like the Music Modernization Act, um, and through uh, just battle after battle, we seem to have been really on a roll the last few years and and winning a lot of these. Um, and uh, it, it's a little bit of a different time than it was a few years ago, and so many people have worked so hard to to try to win some of these battles. And we're actually doing it now, which is great to see. I mean, it must be incredibly humbling to see, you know, to, to see music change over the, over the last, I don't know, 10 to 20 years in terms of, you know, streaming the lack of artists pay for radio play. I, I was, I was stunned, I think, to, to learn that that doesn't happen in the United States. There is, you know, and, and it is set up so well in the UK and, and everywhere else. Um, it must be incredibly humbling to be part of that movement and to have, you know, moved the needle um, for so many people where you know music is not just you know a hobby or you know it, it, it is their livelihood um and i think you know i i used to get so angry when people would um you know uh, download music or, or pirated music or whatever and not pay for it and right. somebody had the you know i remember one of my friends actually said well i think music should be free and i said why do you think it should be free some you know this is someone's livelihood why should they 
give this away for free for, for your consumption. Yeah. Well, that, that mentality, you know, we've, there's been some part of that mentality that has been in our society for decades, if not for hundreds of years. More recently, it's been an idea that's been propagated by people who remarkably have uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. It's mostly from irresponsible tech leaders um, that we hear, well, you know, you shouldn't, you don't have, don't worry about getting paid, you're getting exposure. And don't worry about getting paid on national radio, even though it's an $18 billion a year industry, you're get, we're giving you exposure. Um, Spotify says they don't have to pay us very much per stream. It's a micro, you know, percentages of pennies. Um, because, you know, just think about all the, the audience that you're going to be, you're going to be building. Look, it's always exposure. And, and my joke is always, you know, um, it's, it's a true one. It's not very funny, but it's like, you know, you know, people die from exposure. I can't pay, for, I can't pay my electric bill with exposure. And uh, another, another sort of false hope that people are given is social media. I love social media. All of I Respect Music was built on social media. And my label uses social media every day to tell people about the music that we're making. And I use it every day as an artist. But what a lot of younger artists are being told is they're being told, you know, if you grow your Instagram following, then maybe you can get a brand endorsement and then maybe, you know, and then that, that's really how it works today. And, you know, my response to that is how is building your Instagram following going to, how is that going to work for a jazz trombone player? How is a brand, do you, do you really think some, some bluegrass quintet is going to get a sky vodka deal? Um, and, and in the lecture last week that I did, actually, there was one student who really kind of brought this up. And she was like, I really disagree with what you're saying. You know, Justin Bieber became a star because of, of social media. So I think it can work. And I was like, your example of a middle class artist is Justin Bieber. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think we've kind of lost the thread here. Again, how is a jazz musician going to support his or her family by not actually having an audience? And the thing that happens now is that artists do have audiences, but they can't make a living off of them. Uh, especially niche artists, whether that's a punk band or whether it's a jazz band or a jazz artist or blues singer. The way the economics of middle-class music used to work is if you had 3,000, 5,000 fans and you could sell 3,000 or 5,000 CDs, well, that could be 30 to 50 grand. That's enough to pay for a new record. That's enough to live on for a little while. And then you just have to work really hard constantly, which you know we as musicians do. But the thing is, is that 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 fans that's not remotely enough on a, uh, in the streaming world to support anything because it takes 380,000 streams a month on Spotify to earn minimum wage for an artist. Meanwhile, the average Spotify employee makes $14,000 a month. So, it, you know, um, as David Byrne from Talking Heads said, I think so memorably, he said, you know, what we have now is we have superstars and acclaimed amateurs. And... That's a, really, that's a really disheartening truth, um, certainly for me, who's been a professional musician since he was 13 years old. Um, and I've done well, you know, and continue to. But it's so hard for middle-class artists like me and the ones on my label, and more importantly, for emerging artists. How is, how is, an, how is an artist just getting started supposed to have music as their profession? Like you were saying earlier, like, this is my job. You know, this is, this is, of course I should be paid for this. You're paid for your job. So, you know, I think that all of this, whether it's decades old, centuries old, or, or new, um, with a new twist from, from big tech, 
it basically comes down to sort of a simple perception, which is, you know, Blake, why should you be paid for the job you don't really have? You don't really have a job. You, you make music all day. Why don't you get a real job? And of course, this is patently offensive to any, you know, uh, creative person. <laughs> um, but it's also untrue. There's plenty of music. There's plenty of, I was about to say there's plenty of music and money. There's plenty of money in music. It's just, it's all going to the wrong people. Um, we have a national conversation here in the United States about income inequality. Well, there's no profession you're going to find more in income inequality than in music. Um, Daniel Ek, the founder of Spotify, has, has pirated and innovated with Spotify his way to an $800 million fortune. But middle-class musicians, it is impossible to make a living on Spotify, no matter what he says. So it's a lot. <laughs> yes, it is. It is rather a lot. And I think, you know, there is a lot to be disheartened by, but there is also a lot to be encouraged by. Um, you know, and I think it, it takes artists like yourself um, and for something like that to go viral, to, to get that attention. I mean, you know, for, for it to matter, it needs media attention. It needs, and, you know, this, your, your campaign, I Respect Music, um, at irespectmusic.org, uh, go and sign that petition, um, you know, to get in front of Congress to actually drive change. Yeah, I mean, that's the only way change ever happens. There's a period where people aren't aware of something that's going on. Then there's a period where they become aware. And then there's a period after they become aware where they begin to act. And I think what we've seen in 2018 is that people are really acting. Um, and I think that the, the passing of the Classics Act and the AMP Act um, and the entire Music Modernization Act, those are the different pieces that you know, that, that make up that legislation. Part of it is for songwriters, part of it is for uh, legacy artists, and part of it is for producers. You know, there, there, are, there are a lot of things that are far from perfect in that legislation, but there are a lot of things that really are fantastic. And it's something that I think that we should be celebrating. The fact that that piece of legislation passed the House unanimously and passed the Senate unanimously really shows that there has been will to get something done for music makers in the United States. And it was desperately needed. And, uh, you know, much more is desperately needed, too. But we're seeing a lot of action. I think it's worth being proud of. Well, more to come on that with any luck. Um, so let's just turn this back to you. Um, you have a residency at Rockwood. This has been going for a few years now. Yeah, it's, um, again, another surprise for me. Um, my booking agent and I had a conversation one spring and said, almost at the same time, like, hey, what about like a regular show at Rockwood instead of just one-offs? Like, what if this was a residency and a run? And um, we both thought it was a great idea. And I thought it would be a cool place to kind of start to try some new things. And it's really kind of an informal thing. And uh, very much to my surprise, it, it really didn't turn out that way. The shows began to sell out almost immediately and uh, this run that I've had at Rockwood Music Hall here in New York has, has sold out now for over three years straight. Um, so it's become a real cornerstone of my musical life these days. And it's given birth to and fueled almost 100,000 miles of touring that I've done over the last three years. Um, so and it's given me a chance to play with so many great special guests at my, at my residency. Tracy Bonham, who's now a label mate of mine. Um, Josh Dion, Duncan Sheik is an upcoming guest, um, uh, Julia Haltigan, Yanata, uh, Jesse Harris, Chris Barron from Spin Doctor. So it, it's become a really great place um, that great things in New York music are kind of happening at. You know, when I was a kid and I was growing up on the Lower East Side, I used to go see Les Paul play at Fat Tuesdays. And sometimes there'd be 50 people in the audience, but I'd be one of them. And I, I remember growing up thinking like, it would be so cool to have an intimate show, a regular intimate show where really 
cool stuff would happen and, and musicians would know it was a great hang. And that's really kind of what the Rockwood residency has turned out to be. And I just love it. That's amazing. And that's, you know, definitely what we're also trying to do with the New York Artists Collective here as well. So um, it's wonderful to see that there is so much great music happening. There are people that are, you know, moving the needle um, that are trying to bring that community back to New York. Um, so what is your when is your next show? Yeah, my next show at Rockwood is November 15th with my very special guest, Jamie Lenhart, who's a great singer. Um, and then after that is January uh, 17th with Sonny Ozell and then March 21st with Duncan Sheik and on from there. In the meantime, I think by the time this is airing, I will be on the West Coast on tour. I'm doing five dates uh, again with my label mate, Tracy Bonham. We did a great West Coast tour last spring and we're going back um, now here in November. You are a busy guy. Um, it all sounds very exciting and I very much look forward to coming to a show. I think uh, I think we discussed and I, I will definitely make the January show uh, with oh, Sonia Ozell and I'd, I'd love to see her perform. Well, thank you again for joining us. This has been such a lovely um, and enlightening conversation. Um, and, you know, I'd love to meet you. We'll, we'll hang out. We'll hang out at some point soon. And we'd love to get you um, doing a, an artist collective show. Oh, I'd love to. I, it's been lovely meeting you and having this talk. And uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. The very insightful Blake Morgan there. And if you want to find out a bit more about him, you can go to ecrmusicgroup.com. Thank you very much for listening. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, uh, please do. It's, it's rather fun and we would love it if you continue to listen. We are also on Instagram. We are at New York Artists Collective. I will be back next week chatting to singer-songwriter, Americana and folk artist Eli Lev. And as it's November 6th, make sure you get out there and vote today. I'm Stephanie Manns. Thanks for listening.